We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Away we go, episode 596 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Friday, June 16th, 2023, as we are entering Father's Day weekend, 2023. A salute to all of the fellow dads out there. We are all brothers in arms. Uh, You know, it's funny, this day, June 16th, is the 27th anniversary of the Chicago Bulls winning the 1996 NBA Finals, uh, what was an 87-75 win over the Seattle Supersonics in Game 6 to win those NBA Finals four games to two on Father's Day 1996. And that was especially significant because that was the start of the Bulls' second three-peat off Michael Jordan's first retirement, which came off the murder of his father in July 1993. Yes, Michael Jordan, before he played for the Wizards, he actually played for the Bulls, in case you didn't know. (laughs) Hello and welcome to this Friday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, speaking of our Wizards, Bradley Beal has become the talk of the NBA. Uh, As I said on Thursday's show, episode 595, I do believe that the Wizards have decided that they want to trade Beal. The prevailing thinking around the NBA certainly seems to be in accordance uh, with what I'm thinking and with what I'm sure many of you are thinking. Uh, Which team is going to trade for Bradley Beal? Uh, We are hearing the Miami Heat. We are hearing the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, The Sacramento Kings have come up Personally, as a Wizards fan, I don't care where Beal lands. Uh, I just want as many quality assets back to the Wizards as possible. Although I would caution, and I am preparing myself for this, we may well end up being underwhelmed by what the Wizards get back for Beal, assuming that they do trade him. Because remember, uh, he and his uh, wonderful five-year, $251 million Supermax contract uh, to which he was re-signed last July, has the only no-trade clause in a current NBA contract. So it may be that the Wizards don't get much back for Beal. Sam Amico, senior NBA writer for HoopsWire.com, he on Thursday morning put out a tweet that I thought rung true. Uh, wrote Amico, quote, rival exec on Bradley Beal. Wonderful guy and teammate, not a championship player. 
volume scorer, shoots a lot. It's good. The Wizards are trying to move him. You should get a lot more for the money. End quote. Well said. You know, none of this with Bradley Beal is personal. Uh, He's not some terrible person. He is a very good player. He's just not the elite player the Wizards have paid him as and have treated him as. Uh, Trading him is nothing personal. It's strictly business, like our guy Michael Corleone said in The Godfather. It's not personal, Sonny. It's strictly business. (laughs) Exactly. Coming up next segment, uh, a good guest with whom I will talk commanders, former Redskins salary cap analyst, J.I. Hulsell. Uh J.I. is one of the best people out there in terms of talking NFL from salary cap and contract perspectives. He worked for the Skins uh, during rather eventful times. Uh, J.I. worked for the Skins as a cap analyst from March 2007 to January 2009, and he's going to spend some time with us talking about the Commander's offseason in terms of the cap and contracts. Uh, We will discuss how the sale of the team is impacting potential contract extensions for edge defender Montez Sweat and safety Cameron Curl. Uh, We will discuss what kind of an extension we might be looking at with Montez. We will discuss the big money contract extension for interior defensive lineman Deron Payne, including a notable aspect of the layout of the signing bonus payment in that contract. We will discuss the commanders not exercising the fifth-year option in the rookie contract of edge defender Chase Young. We will discuss the commanders possibly slash probably having a QB1 on a rookie contract in Sam Howell with the rest of the NFC East having QB1s on big money contracts. All of that and more with J.I. Wholesale next segment. Uh, J.I. is really good. He will make us smarter about it the Commanders. Uh, Also on the show, I'll talk about wins for the Nationals and Orioles on Thursday. The Nats, for a second consecutive night, had a wild game at the Houston Astros, but this time the Nats won uh, a 4-1 10-inning win in a game that was scoreless through eight innings. The Nats then blew a 1-0 ninth-inning lead, but they then scored three runs in the top of the 10th. Excellent pitching by the Nats on Thursday night, led by starter Mackenzie Gore, five and two-thirds scoreless innings. And also getting good pitching was the O's. They beat the Toronto Blue Jays 4-2 at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on Thursday afternoon. Starter Tyler Wells continued his very good season, two runs in six and two-thirds innings with eight strikeouts versus one walk. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Tweet from Perry Jackman, on something that I brought up on Thursday's show, episode 595, the possibility of incoming Commander's owner Josh Harris, who was slash is a minority owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers, trying to somehow get Steelers head coach Mike Tomlin as Commander's head coach, should Ron Rivera uh, not last (laughs) as Commander's head coach, past next offseason. Uh, I brought this up on Thursday's show in our conversation with Jeff Hartman, a writer for Behind the Steel Curtain and the host of the Steelers podcast, the Steel Curtain Network podcast. Uh, Jeff broke the news of the Steelers having, quote, strong interest, end quote, in trading for commander's edge defender Chase Young. Uh, writes Perry, doesn't this sound like a huge conflict of interest for Josh Harris? I'm surprised the NFL isn't or hasn't yet required Harris to divest from the Steelers. But hey, 
if we can offload Chase Young and get Mike Tomlin, that'd be a huge step forward for the W's. Everyday listener, thanks for sweating details. Uh, well, thank you for that very much, Perry. Uh, so there has been no news of Josh Harris selling his minority stake in the Steelers. I suppose that it's possible that he has sold his stake in the Steelers and that that just has uh, been kept on the down low. Uh, I've been told that Harris selling his ownership in the Steelers uh, would not be a problem or take long at all. You would think that as he's in the process of becoming the lead owner of the Commanders, that he no longer has you know access to the inner workings of the Steelers uh, as he presumably had previously. But of course, it's not like Harris is just going to forget about all of the intel that he had on the Steelers and being one of their owners. I have no idea if Josh Harris would want to hire Mike Tomlin as Commanders head coach. I have no idea if Mike Tomlin would want to become Commanders head coach. I have no idea if it would even be feasible for Mike Tomlin to become Commanders head coach. He's reportedly under contract to the Steelers through the 2024 season. I just thought that the Josh Harris-Mike Tomlin angle was worth pondering. Remember, Denver Broncos head coach Sean Payton, this past February 10th, in an appearance on Mad Dog Sports Radio on Sirius XM, revealed that potential commanders' ownership groups had contacted him about possibly becoming the team's head coach. Uh, there never were that many potential commanders' ownership groups. And so if one of those groups was the Josh Harris group, if Harris months ago was interested in firing Ron Rivera in favor of Sean Payton, why wouldn't Harris be interested in hiring Mike Tomlin if that is at all possible? And that may not be possible. Tweet from Jim Wynn on something that I talked about on Monday's show, episode 592. And that something was NFL insider Ian Rappaport of NFL Network and NFL.com on the Pat McAfee show this past Friday, June 9th, saying that the name of the team currently known as the Commanders will not be changing. And he said this pretty declaratively, writes Jim, thinking about the report from Rappaport that seems emphatic that the Josh Harris group won't change the Commanders name. I can't help but wonder if the only explanation is Snyder put a contingency in the sale that the name can't change so he can cling to his legacy. <laughs> Any possibility, Goldie? Uh, thank you for the tweet, Jim. So did our outgoing co-owner and co-CEO of the Commanders, Dan Snyder, aka the Danny, aka Danny Boy, as one last shot at, as one last bleep you two fans of the team put into the agreement to sell the team to the Josh Harris group, a stipulation by which the name of the team can't change. Uh, well, anything is possible, especially with Dan, but I would be really surprised if the NFL allowed for something like that to be put into the agreement. Now, it may well be that the NFL doesn't want the team changing from commanders. I actually think that it's quite possible that that's how Ian Rappaport got this intel that the name of the team isn't changing again, that he got the intel from the league and not from the Harris group. But the NFL allowing for such a stipulation to be put into the agreement would be the NFL kowtowing to Dan Snyder. And I just have a hard time seeing the NFL doing that. The NFL wants Dan out of the league. The NFL is much more powerful than Dan is. Uh, although, you know, I suppose that you could say 
that the NFL might allow Dan to dictate something in exchange for him voluntarily selling the team as opposed to the owners having to vote Dan out of the NFL. So who knows? Uh, Like I said, anything is possible, especially with our guy, Danny. Well, for more than 40 years, the law firm of Paulson and Nace has been making justice possible for those harmed by the negligence of others. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. Founded in 1979, Paulson and Nace is dedicated to promoting the rights of seriously injured persons and their families. You can call Paulson and Nace at 202 902-7611. And when you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace handles medical malpractice, personal injury, birth injury, legal malpractice, and consumer protection cases offering aggressive advocacy for victims in Washington, D.C. and West Virginia. Paulson and Nace is widely respected throughout Washington, D.C. and West Virginia for the firm's accomplishments both in and out of courtrooms. Chris Nace and Matt Nace are dedicated trial attorneys who do not balk in the face of large insurance companies or well-known businesses that have had practices or products that are directly related to the root of your harm. And by the way, a big congratulations to Chris Nace, who was just named the 2023 Barry J. Nace Trial Lawyer of the Year. Uh, This by the D.C. Trial Lawyers Association. Paulson and Nace does not accept Low settlement offers that benefit the people who cause clients harm more than the offers benefit the clients. And this is because Paulson and Nace is not afraid to take a case to trial. And that's because Paulson and Nace wins trials. Paulson and Nace has secured millions of dollars in verdict and settlement amounts for clients to better enable them to care for themselves and their families. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. Call 202-902-7611. That's 202-902-7611. Make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. You could also visit paulsonandnace.com. That's paulsonandnace.com. Just make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace, if you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. Well, a big help is if you subscribe to rate and review this podcast, you can subscribe to the podcast via most platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, a subscription to the pod costs you nothing and make sure that you never miss an episode. Uh, You on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify can rate the podcast. Five star ratings are very much appreciated and you on Apple Podcasts can write a review saying that you like the podcast. The review can be just a sentence or two, can't be more, but doesn't have to be. And thank you very much for subscribing, rating, and reviewing. It was on Tuesday night that we had multiple reports that NFL owners have been told to reserve two dates, July 20th and August 8th, uh, these as dates for a possible special league meeting, presumably for a vote on the sale of the commanders to the Josh Harris group. Uh, July 20th would be a week before the July 27th start of Commander's training camp. August 8th would be weeks into training camp. Uh, Head coach Rod Rivera has said that the team, because of the sale having not been finalized, is in a holding pattern regarding potential contract extensions for edge defender Montez Sweat and safety Cameron Curl. And so to talk about that and a lot more about the Commanders from salary cap and contract perspectives. I'm very pleased to welcome back to the Al Galdi podcast right now, former Redskins salary cap analyst 
J.I. Wholesale. Uh, he worked for the Skins as a salary cap analyst from March 2007 to January 2009. Uh, he worked as an NFL Players Association certified contract advisor for Octagon from August 2020 to August 2022. And he now is the executive vice president of client compensation for Three Strand Sports and Entertainment. Uh, J.I. is a local. He went to Gonzaga College High School in Washington, D.C. You could follow J.I. on Twitter at SalaryCap101. J.I., it is great to talk to you. How are you? I'm doing well, Al. Thanks for having me, as always. Well, before we get to all of the salary cap and contract stuff, uh, you worked for the team for two years. Uh, I know that you still follow the team. Uh, what has been your reaction to the sale of the team? Yeah, I think, you know, to, to know that it's going to a owner who also has local ties, I think just from a um, engagement standpoint, I think is, is a good um, aspect of this sell. Um, you know, and I've, I've said this before. I mean, I'm surprised that we've gotten to this point, um, but I understand why we've gotten to this point. And, um, you know, uh, look, Dan's going to make a ton of money off of selling the team. Right. So no one should uh, feel bad for Dan Snyder. Um, but um, again, pleasantly surprised, really like the new ownership group. Um, and ju- it just we just need to get it across the goal line here and be officially official. Yes. And it looks like that'll be happening in the coming weeks. So when it comes to potential contract extensions for Montez Sweat and Cameron Curl, if you're Ron Rivera, if you're general manager Martin Mayhew, if you're the team salary cap guy, uh, senior vice president of football administration, Rob Rogers, is there any meaningful progress that you can be making on those potential contract extensions right now? Or can nothing constructive be done until the sale of the team is finalized? I mean, I think from a club perspective, you're always trying to keep your options open for as long as possible. And you know, one of the things that you have to navigate in Washington situation is the sell of the team. And so, um, you know, do you maybe have some preliminary conversations with the agents of those two players? Perhaps just to kind of get some macro level understanding of kind of where they're at versus where the organization is at. But in terms of like getting into the nitty gritty negotiation, uh, yeah, you're probably going to hold off until you get a better sense for what your ownership looks like and what the budgets are going to look like. When an NFL team is negotiating a big money contract extension with a player, how frequently is ownership consulted? Like, does the front office simply work off parameters from ownership, or is ownership part of the process most steps of the way? Yeah, I mean, I think early on, or I know early on in the in the negotiation, you're working off of parameters that you've set in just kind of, you're doing your budget setting, both from a cash and cap standpoint, you know, you're working within a certain parameter, but as you get to close to closing the deal, particularly a big money deal, um, yeah, you're definitely going to engage ownership just to make sure that we're all on the same page in making this financial commitment to a player. Um, And that goes back to my point from a minute or so ago that, you know, with, ownership kind of in flux right now, it, it really kind of, you kind of have to pause a little bit on kind of the pace of this conversation with a Montez Sweat as an example. So with Montez Sweat, he's a good player. He does lack big sack totals, but more and more, I do think that there's an understanding that you can't judge edge guys solely on sacks. A lot of the advanced stats speak highly of Montez 
Do you see them via a contract extension getting close to top of the market money? Yeah, I don't. Look, I'm not expecting him to get a TJ Watt 28 million or Joey Bosa 27 million per year deal. But will could his extension be in excess of 20 million per year? Absolutely. Um, because I think that's kind of <laughs> the low end top of the market, if you will. Um, and it's not too different than really kind of the Terry McLaurin wide receiver contract. Um, I think, you know, Montez Sweat probably kind of fits that. And if you're trying to preclude him from getting to the market, that's probably where you're going to need to be at in order to get an extension done. Well, a contract extension that the commanders this offseason have gotten done is the Duran Payne extension, a four-year, $90 million deal, $46.01 million guaranteed at signing. The contract made Duran the second highest paid interior defensive lineman in NFL history in terms of average annual value. Uh, the expectation was that the market for interior defensive linemen, it was going to skyrocket this offseason, during which we also have seen contract extensions for the New York Giants' Dexter Lawrence and the Tennessee Titans' Jeffrey Simmons. Has the market played out as you thought it would? Yeah. Look, you know, Aaron Donald's the anomaly on that market at 31. No one's getting to that number, right? But, you know, the Jeffrey Simmons deal coming in at 23.5, Payne at 22.5, Lawrence at 22.5. Uh, you know, the next deal that's going to get done is another deal for Chris Jones with the Chiefs, which I suspect will be probably around that 23 and a half, if not more than the Jeffrey Simmons deal. So, yeah, it's played out kind of the way one would expect. You would expect that, yeah, Deron Payne for a hot second there was going to be the highest, second highest paid D tackle after Aaron Donald. And then, you know, whether it was Simmons or Lawrence and it ended up being Simmons, it was going to be a little bit higher. Um, so, yeah, I think it's it's kind of par for the course in terms of your expectations. One of the things about the Duran Payne extension that got some attention was the delayed nature of the signing bonus money. Uh, the extension was signed on March 13th, but according to Commander's Insider Ben Standing of The Athletic, the first signing bonus payment in the contract wasn't until May 12th, as opposed to the usual 15 to 30 days after the signing of the contract. Now, Interestingly, May 12th also was the day on which we got the formal joint announcement from Commander's co-owners and co-CEOs Dan and Tanya Snyder and from Josh Harris on behalf of the Harris Ownership Group announcing uh, that Harris had entered into an agreement by which he would purchase the Commander's. Maybe that was just coincidence, but was there significance to the Commander's delaying the payments to Deron Payne? Yeah, no, you know, having obviously worked on these contracts and worked on these contracts for that team. Um, that timeline is not normal. It's not normal for a lot of organizations, right? So it was very clear that they intentionally delayed the cash payout of the signing bonuses. Um, and, you know, I don't think it's a far-fetched assumption to say that, yeah, the uh, pending sale of the team played into that. Um, and, and I get it, you know, from a Dan Snyder perspective, he probably wanted to have some clarity around, okay, am I selling the team or not? And so, again, it goes back to what I said a couple of minutes ago. You want to keep your options open for as long as possible. And in this regard, doing that means you delay the first installment of the signing bonus uh, You know, while you work through the sell of the team. So um, I do think that that was tangible evidence of a, sell that was being, a sale that was being uh, worked on. 
When NFL player contracts get done, teams have to put the fully guaranteed portions of contracts in escrow accounts. Is that right? Future fully guaranteed money would need to be put into an escrow account in the spring. Yes. So for this Duran Payne contract extension, that escrow account money is the responsibility of Dan Snyder or Josh Harris? Well, so if Duran Payne, and I assume he does, has fully guaranteed money, in, meaning when I say fully guaranteed, guaranteed for skill, injury, and caps, meaning Washington cannot get out of that payment. Um, if he has that money in 2024, and in 2025, and I suspect he does have fully guaranteed money in 2025, then let's just use that money in 2025. That money that's fully guaranteed in 2025 needs to go into an escrow account that the league maintains in spring of 2024. So that means that is money that the owner, whoever it may be, needs to, you know, doesn't have access to for an entire year. The, the fully guaranteed money in 2024, it goes into the escrow account in the spring of 24, but it comes out of there a few months later as you pay it out to the player. But again, that fully guaranteed money in 2025 sits in this escrow account, you know, without being able to be used for an entire year. And that's the part of this uh, mechanism that owners do not like. Yeah, I was going to ask, why does the NFL have this uh, escrow account rule? I mean, these owners aren't in danger of running out of cash. Am I missing something here, or is the rule, in fact, antiquated? No, it's absolutely an antiquated uh, mechanism from the 80s, right? <laughs> when, when teams weren't as ca- cash-rich as they are today. Um, and, you know, frankly, uh, having been on the other side of the negotiating table and now being on the agent side of the negotiating table, it's a very convenient excuse for teams to say, well, we can't fully guarantee your contract because then we're going to have to put a huge chunk of cash into into escrow, which will then uh, preclude our ability from a cash standpoint to go get uh, free agents and free agency, uh, yada, yada, yada. So um, it's one of those things where, on one hand, you are surprised that the NFLPA has not negotiated out of the system during their CBA negotiations. But on the other hand, it only impacts a very small percentage of the player population. And so in the course of a CBA negotiation, do you really want to negotiate something out that only impacts a very small uh, uh, fraction of your constituents? We are talking commanders from salary cap and contract perspectives with former skin salary cap analyst J.I. Wholesale. The commanders this offseason declined the fifth-year option in the rookie contract of edge defender Chase Young. Before I get your take on that, what did you make of the more global trend of fifth-year options being declined? Fourteen of the first-round picks in the 2020 NFL draft had their fifth-year options declined. Well, here's what here's what changed. It used to be that fifth-year option did not become fully guaranteed until the league year in which that fifth-year option was going to be paid. So when you had to exercise it ahead of year four, it was only injury-only guaranteed, and then ahead of year five, it became fully guaranteed. Well, that now changed to, in year four, when you exercise the fifth-year option, it's fully guaranteed at that point. That's a completely different uh, dynamic because now you are you're locked in and committed and so going back to what I've said a couple of times on this call 
Cubs want to keep their options open for as long as possible. And when it was only an injury-only guarantee during year four that flipped to fully guaranteed in year five, well, I could still get out of it at some point before I get to that fifth year. Now I don't have the ability to get out of it. So I'm going to play this more conservatively and just not exercise it. That's And and then I, I can you know, see how the player plays in year four, choose to tag them, choose to give them an extension, but I keep my options open for as long as possible. That's why I think you've seen uh, this increased number of fifth-year options being declined. Specific to Chase Young, I take it that you were not surprised that the commanders did not exercise his fifth-year option. Well... Considering the fact that, here's a couple things, when you don't pick up that fifth-year option, now if he returns to form, you have the franchise tag if you want to retain his rights. He technically doesn't need to sign the franchise tag so he can withhold his services. It just gets messier when you, in that, from that standpoint. Whereas when you exercise the fifth-year option while, yeah, it's a, it's a more expensive uh, financial commitment, He's now under contract. He can't withhold his services. He has to show up. Um, so there, there's that kind of, you know, those pros and cons. But given the past few years for Chase and given the financial commitment, given the change in ownership, I can see why they went with the more conservative financial approach of declining the fifth-year option. Uh, quarterback, pretty much every offseason with our team, there is a uh, new conversation at quarterback. Uh, the approach for this coming season is Sam Howell, who's being positioned to be the QB1. If he is the QB1, that would set up a massive salary cap discrepancy between what the commanders are paying their QB1 and what the rest of the teams in the NFC East are paying their QB1s. Uh, as you know, a lot gets made of the value of an NFL team having a quarterback on a rookie contract. Obviously, all things being equal, you'd rather have a good quarterback on a rookie contract as opposed to a big money contract. But there are plenty of teams that have good rosters, even with big money quarterbacks. Is the restrictive nature of the big money quarterback contract overrated or uh, properly rated? I think that it's it's properly rated. Like I, it, you know, just at a macro level, if you're not, pay, if, you know, it's the most expensive position on your roster, right? And so, if you've got a good quarterback or an elite quarterback on a rookie contract, that is a great position to be in, and it allows you flexibility to spend at other positions. Um, that being said, you eventually are going to have to pay that quarterback, right? And it then becomes incumbent for you to then, okay, now that you've shifted a lot of your assets into the quarterback room, now you've got to get cheaper at other positions. And so it becomes incumbent upon you to draft well and to find college-free agents and um, and find, quite frankly, cheap labor at other positions uh, so that you can kind of navigate having that expenditure at the quarterback position. So it is a real thing. It's just not impossible. When it comes to where we're headed with big money quarterback contracts, uh, which destination is more likely? More fully guaranteed contracts or contracts tied to salary cap percentages? Yeah, I think, you know, just the optics of fully guaranteed contracts, like the owners in the league, they're very conscious of optics, right? And um, 
for the casual fan, they understand what a fully guaranteed contract means and why that's such a big deal. And I think because of that, that's why ownership and the league is so um, steadfast in being against it, right? Whereas when we talk about percentage of the cap, that requires a fan who kind of understands kind of numbers and at a macro level, like, okay, I get the cap's increasing. And so now you're telling me that this player's compensation should increase with the movement of the cap. That's a little more of a nuanced understanding. I think you have, because of that, I think you have a greater likelihood of getting there. The problem is, is, and I used to work in the management council, is that the management council kind of sets the tone on what's acceptable from a mechanism standpoint in these contracts. And so if the, if the management council were to ever, and when I say the management council, that's a, that's the department in the NFL league office responsible for the re- review and approval of all player contracts and managing the salary cap, quite frankly. Um, if you could ever get the management council on board with, look, in lieu of giving these players fully guaranteed contracts, we're going to allow a mechanism that allows the compensation to move with the salary cap, then I think you have a chance. And, uh, you know, you've seen it in some respects with, like, Namdi Asimov, quite, it, it's, it's odd, as a corner with the then Oakland Raiders, had a mechanism in his contract that allowed his money to move with the salary cap. It basically said your pay would be that greater of the quarterback franchise tag or this number that we've already negotiated. Um, you could create a similar situation with any contract today. It's just um, no one's done it. Um, and I think the management council might give a team and a player a hard time in approving it. All right. Tremendous insight on the commanders from salary cap and contract perspectives. Former skin salary cap analyst J.I. Holsell. Uh, J.I., great to catch up. Have a nice weekend. I appreciate it, Goldie. Thanks, man. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
Well, we on Thursday night had drama for the Nationals at the Houston Astros for a second consecutive night, but this time the Nats won. Uh, Wednesday night, a 5-4 walk-off loss for the Nats in a game in which they overcame a 4-1 ninth inning deficit, but then got victimized once again by what has come to be known as the Trey Turner play. But Thursday night, a 4-1 10-inning win for the Nats in a game in which they blew a 1-0 ninth inning lead, but then scored three runs in the top of the 10th as the boys prevailed. I'm proud of the boys. That's right. Nats manager Davey Martinez. No need for a postgame rant on Thursday night. Uh, the Nats on Thursday night won for just the fourth time in 15 games. Uh, the Nats now are 27 and 40. Uh, that is the second worst record in the National League. All four of the Nats' runs on Thursday night came over the ninth and tenth innings. Great to see Kbert Ruiz have a big game. Uh, Kbert has been struggling. He entered Thursday with an OPS plus for this regular season of just 87. OPS plus is OPS that's adjusted for a player's league and home ballpark. 100 is average. Below 100 is bad. Above 100 is good. And OPS plus of 87 is bad. Although Kbert this season has been victimized by a lot of bad luck. So I don't want to beat him up too bad for his batting. Anyway, he on Thursday night as an at-starting catcher and number five batter, three for five with a solo homer, an RBI single, and another single. Uh, he broke the scoreless tie. Kate Baird in an at's one-run ninth, a leadoff homer to right field off Astros reliever Ryan Presley for a 1-0 Nats lead. Then Kate Baird in the Nats three-run tenth, a one-out bases-loaded opposite field RBI single to left center field for a 4-1 Nats lead. And K. Baird in the top of the second had a one-out single up the middle. Davey Martinez during his postgame session with reporters on Thursday night on K. Baird Ruiz, including the big home run. Yeah, it was big, big. Good, great at bat by him right there. Um, stayed, on, stayed on a breaking ball. Um, and, and the way he hit it, man, it was a line drive, you know, and that's 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 awesome. So, And then he comes up again and, and stays inside the ball and stays in the middle of the field and knocks in another big run for us. So um, what a good day. Great job catching as well. I mean, um, you know, he, he had control of the game all game. Um, and he, they kept our pitching staff, kept us right there. Yes, it did. Uh, more on the Nats pitching in a bit, but three other Nats had multi-hit games on Thursday night. Lane Thomas, Corey Dickerson, and Dominic Smith. Uh, Lane Thomas, he is the Nats starting right fielder and number one batter, two for five with a double and an RBI single. Thomas in that Nats three-run tenth, a one-out RBI single up the middle for a 2-1 Nats lead. Also, Thomas in the top of the eighth had a one-out first pitch double off the left field wall. Uh, Corey Dickerson got on base three times. He is an at starting DH and number four batter went two for four with two singles and a bases loaded walk. And yes, I did say starting DH, uh, Joey Medesis on Thursday, a rare day off. Uh, Dickerson in that Nats three run 10th, a one out bases loaded walk for a 3-1 Nats lead. Uh, he in the top of the fourth had a one out opposite field seeing eye single through the left side of the infield despite having been down to the count at 1.02. And he, in the top of the second, had a leadoff opposite field infield single toward third base on an 0-2 pitch, but then was thrown out in an attempted steal of second base. Corey Dickerson had not attempted a steal, not registered a steal, attempted a steal in a major league regular season game 
since 2021, and yet he, for some reason, was attempting a steal in this spot. Uh, did not work out so well. That may have been a failed hit and run, but still, some good stuff from Corey Dickerson on Thursday night. And then Dominic Smith on Thursday night. Uh, Thursday was his 28th birthday, by the way. He is an Nats starting first baseman and number six batter, two for five with uh, two one-out first pitch singles. Dom Smith is on a nice run here. His on-base percentage for this regular season is up to 346, and he actually has hit for some power lately, uh, at least by his uh, 2023 standards. Uh, but the Nats on Thursday night did blow the one nothing ninth inning lead, although the Nats on Thursday night did get excellent pitching. So the Nats bullpen on Thursday night overall was very good. Four Nats relievers combined to allow one run in four and a third innings with six strikeouts. Uh, Mason Thompson continues to look so much better lately. He on Thursday night tossed one and a third perfect innings. He came into the game in the bottom of the six with runners on first and second, two outs, and the game scoreless. And he came through, struck out the Astros' number five batter, Jose Abreu, on three pitches. Then came Kyle Finnegan. He was very good. He tossed a scoreless bottom of the eighth with three swinging strikeouts, including back-to-back six-pitch swinging strikeouts of the Astros' numbers two and three batters, Jose Altuve and Alex Bregman. Now, then came Hunter Harvey, and he allowed a run in the bottom of the ninth. Uh, he gave up a leadoff double by Kyle Tucker to right field. Harvey did then retire two consecutive Astros batters, but Harvey then gave up a two-out pinch RBI single by Yainer Diaz up the middle to tie the game at one. Hunter Harvey, as the Nats closer, as their ace reliever, uh, is faltering. He, this regular season now, is just three for eight on saves. He, in that 5-4 walk-off loss on Wednesday night in the bottom of the ninth, allowed an unearned run and recorded two outs. It's not like he, over these last two games at the Astros, got smashed, but he also did not come through. Uh, but the Nats on Thursday night did then score three runs in the top of the 10th, and then Carl Edwards Jr. tossed a perfect bottom of the 10th. So overall, the bullpen on Thursday night was good. Uh, as was the Nats' starting pitcher, Mackenzie Gore. Uh, he tossed five and two-thirds scoreless innings. Now, these were, uh, shall we say, laborious innings for Mackenzie Gore. He threw 95 pitches, 51 strikes versus 44 balls. He issued three walks. He gave up four hits, but all four of the hits were singles, and he recorded four strikeouts. You know, Gore has not been at his best lately, but the overall body of work does continue to be good, and it's important to remember this guy is a young starting pitcher. He, this regular season, 14 starts, ERA of 374, a whip of 138, strikeouts per nine innings of 10.49. Overall, those are good numbers. I mean, to me, if you're a Nats fan, you take those numbers and you hug them with all of your might. Uh, because if that's the foundation for Mackenzie Gore and he can get better from that, that's a pretty good starting point. 14 starts in ERA, uh, 374 uh, strikeouts per nine innings of 10.49. Uh, a few other Nats items for you. Reliever Sean Doolittle now is pitching for AAA Rochester and in theory could be called up to the majors at any time. I don't know how imminent uh, him being called up to the majors is, uh, but Doolittle is an option for a Nats bullpen that uh, has been lacking an effective lefty big time this season. So the Nats this past November re-signed Doolittle as a free agent to a minor league contract, this off having brought him back to the team via a one-year free agent major league contract in March 2022. Doolittle 
in the 2022 regular season, totaled just six games. Now, he over those six games was great, five and a third scoreless and walkless innings with six strikeouts. He retired 16 of the 17 batters he faced, but Doolittle ended up missing the rest of the 2022 season due to a left elbow injury. Uh, This season is his age 36 season. He is a lefty, and again, the Nats this season have very much lacked a quality lefty reliever, although, you know, there's no guarantee that Doolittle uh, would be good, but he could be good for the Nats, and the bullpen uh, still could use some help. Uh, Meantime, LSU pitcher Paul Skeens, who is being talked about as the best pitching prospect in an MLB draft since the Nats' Steven Strasburg, and who quite possibly is going to be taken by the Nats with the number two overall pick in the 2023 MLB draft. Uh, Major honor for Paul Skeens on Thursday. He was named as the winner of the 2023 Dick Hauser Trophy. Uh, The Dick Hauser Trophy is given annually to the most outstanding player in NCAA Division I baseball. Skeens also is Collegiate Baseball's 2023 National Player of the Year and is the 2023 SEC Pitcher of the Year. The numbers for Paul Skeens this season are jaw-dropping. He, as we speak, is number one in the nation in strikeouts at 188, in strikeouts per nine innings at 15.81, and in whip at 0.78, and he is number two in the nation in ERA at 1.77. He is listed by LSU as being 6'6" and 247 pounds. If you are a Nats fan, it is hard not to be lusting after Paul Skeens. And, you know, you think about the 2023 MLB draft, the Nats have the number two overall pick. They are guaranteed to get either Skeens or his LSU teammate, outfielder Dylan Cruz, who could be a franchise outfielder. There are other appealing players in this draft. But the two best would seem to be Cruz and Skeens, and the Nats, in having that number two overall pick, are guaranteed to get one of those two guys should the Nats want one of those two guys. Next up for the Nats, a three-game series against the Miami Marlins at Nationals Park. Game one Friday night at 7.05, Trevor Williams will be the Nats' starting pitcher. Game two Saturday afternoon at 4.05, Jake Irvin will be the Nats' starting pitcher. And game three Sunday afternoon at 1.35, Patrick Corbin will be the Nats' starting pitcher. Hey, another win for the Orioles. Uh, they concluded a 5-1 homestand with a 4-2 win over the Toronto Blue Jays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on Thursday afternoon as the O's bounce back from their 3-1 loss to the Blue Jays on Wednesday night. The O's ended up winning two or three games in the series. And we're back, Joe Angel, in the win column. And the Orioles again in the win column. <laughs> that is correct, Joe. The win column. Uh, the O's now are 43-25, and 25, second best record in the American League and in the majors. Another very good outing by Orioles starting pitcher Tyler Wells. Uh, he this season has been the Orioles' best starting pitcher. He, on Thursday afternoon, was good for a fourth consecutive start. Wells allowed two runs in six and two-thirds innings with 
eight strikeouts versus one walk. He gave up just five hits, although four of the hits were extra base hits. So Wells gave up two solo homers, uh, both of which were by Blue Jays catcher Danny Jansen. Uh, Wells also gave up two doubles and a single, but he threw a lot of strikes, 90 pitches, 65 strikes versus just 25 balls. So let's consider Tyler Wells. The O selected Wells from the Minnesota Twins in December 2020 in the 2020 Rule 5 draft. This guy is a Rule 5 pick. Uh, he also is a converted reliever. Uh, Wells last season made the switch from reliever to starter. Uh, Wells in the 2022 regular season made 23 starts, totaled 103 and two-thirds innings, registered an ERA of 425 and an ERA plus of 93. But he also dealt with injury. Uh, he was on the 15-day injured list from July 28th, 2022 to September 7th. 2022 due to lower left side discomfort, and he ended the season on the 15-day injured list due to right shoulder inflammation. But Wells this season, his age 28 season, has been really good. Uh, Wells in this 2023 regular season, 14 games, including 13 starts, an ERA of 320, a whip of 0.86. That is the best whip among all qualified pitchers in the majors. And then there are the strikeouts. Tyler Wells this regular season already has more strikeouts than he had all of last regular season. Uh, Wells last regular season averaged 6.6 strikeouts per nine innings. He this regular season is averaging 9.04 strikeouts for nine innings. Uh, what a season Wells is having. Here was O's manager, Brandon Hyde, during his postgame press conference on Thursday afternoon on Tyler Wells. Besides the Danny Jansen at-bats, he was absolutely um, fantastic, doing what he's been doing all year, throwing a ton of strikes, working ahead in the count, um, locates, locates well, um, good mix with his fastball cutter, slider, changeup. Super unpredictable. You can throw all of them for strikes and um, two runs and six and two thirds, just eight punch outs. Uh, only one walk. Just great, great start from him. He's been doing this all year. Really, the one ward for him this season has been those home runs. Is there anything you're seeing that's that's leading to that? Well, we have a tough time with Danny Jansen. So, collectively, <laughs> in the last couple of years, and uh, I, I think he pitches up in the zone a lot. And it's not, I mean, the fastball gets on you, and it's a 6'8 guy that it's out in front, and it plays up above 92, 93. But it's not a Batista fastball where it's it's uh, got a ton of ride to it. and and But it's a good fastball. And I just think sometimes guys can ambush it a little bit and get to it. The fact sure. that Tyler Wells has been this consistent and the strikeout numbers are there, has any of this surprised you at all? Um, not really. I mean, he's having a great, I didn't, if he told me he would be six and two with a three two ERA right now, uh, I'd have been ecstatic. But I mean, he pitched extremely well last year, just in kind of a weird situation with short sprint starts and a leash. And but he had—I mean, I remember in Toronto on a getaway day. Uh, I, I remember I, I think I called him or texted him the night before, said I'm let you go a little bit. He went, I think, six scoreless or six gave up one, a kind of similar outing to this. He's just, he's done this before. Uh, and so um, I'm not real surprised. I think he's got a really, I think he can really pitch. 
And he's certainly showing that this season. The Orioles bullpen over the first two games of this series win over the Blue Jays, uh, not so good, but the bullpen on Thursday afternoon was better. Two Orioles relievers combined for two and a third scoreless innings. Yanir Cano officially tossed a scoreless inning, although he faced seven batters and got just three outs. He gave up three singles and a walk. Uh, You know, Cano certainly has come back down to earth. Uh, since it's white hot start to his time at the major league level this season. But then Felix Batista on Thursday afternoon, more dominance, one and a third perfect innings with two strikeouts for a four-out save. So your updated strikeout rate for Batista this regular season, 32 and a third innings, 66 strikeouts. That works out to a strikeouts per nine innings of 18.37, which is absurd. Uh, The Orioles hitting on Thursday afternoon, solid, uh, four runs, 11 hits, two walks. So the O's went two for nine with runners in scoring position. The 11 hits were comprised of two home runs and nine singles. The homers came from Adley Rutschman and Austin Hayes. Rutschman has the Orioles starting DH and number two batter, three for five, with a solo homer and two singles. He ended Orioles one run fifth, had a leadoff homer to left field on an 0-2 pitch to tie the game at two. Uh, you know, Rutschman's power has dipped, but he, for this regular season, does have an OPS of 823. And Austin Hayes, uh, he is the Orioles starting left fielder and number one batter, two for five with a solo homer and a single. Hayes in an Orioles one run eighth, a two out solo homer on a bomb to left center field for a 4-2 Orioles lead. The homer winner projected 439 feet per stat cast. Hayes is number one among all qualified Orioles in OPS for this regular season, 851. Next up for the Orioles, a three-game series at the Chicago Cubs. Game one Friday afternoon at 2.20. Cole Irvin will be the Orioles' starting pitcher. Game two Saturday afternoon at 2.20. Kyle Gibson will be the Orioles' starting pitcher. And game three Sunday afternoon at 1.05. Dean Kramer will be the Orioles' starting pitcher. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Monday show, episode 597. We'll have a lot for you on the Commanders and on the rest of our Washington, D.C. area sports weekend. The Nationals this weekend have a three-game series against the Miami Marlins at Nationals Park. The Orioles this weekend have a three-game series at the Chicago Cubs. Have a great weekend, and I'll talk to you on Monday. It's not personal, Sonny. It's strictly business.